Hello, Politics in Question listeners. This is James Walner, and I am here to let you know that we recorded this episode on May 27th, just days before Americans took to the streets across the nation to protest the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, Ahmaud Arbery, and Sean Reed. While we do not mention these tragic events specifically in the episode because of when we recorded it, we nevertheless hope that our discussion in it can contribute to many of your ongoing conversations about American democracy. In the coming weeks, we hope you will join us as we start to take on these issues more directly, seeking to amplify the voices of those who have studied them closely for years, whose lives and perspectives differ from our own, and whose research can broaden our understanding of the challenges Black Americans face on a daily basis. Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. I'm Julia Azari, Associate Professor of Political Science at Marquette University. And I'm James Walner, a Senior Fellow at the R Street Institute. And I'm Lee Drutman, a Senior Fellow at New America. So today we're talking about about political norms and democratic values and, and democracy. We want to follow up on our last episode where we talked about the difference between norms and values and what's, you know, what the, what the importance is for democracy. And we're going to transition here going a little bit deeper into some of these ideas about what core democratic values are. So let's start with, with a quick recap of what each of us took from our last episode that we want to, um, we want to bring into this one and kind of give our listeners a sense of where we're going. Lee, you want to get us started? Yeah, I'd love to get us started. Uh, yeah, so I, I thought this was a, a really interesting episode that we did last time, and I'm so glad we're doing the kind of follow-up to it because I, I think we opened up a lot of questions that uh, are, are really essential to our understanding of democracy and where we are. And I, I think the core question to me is this question of whether norms are crumbling or whether norms are really just changing. And how much we should be attached to uh, the norms that had sustained us for a while and whether they really reflected our values and whether there was an opportunity uh, to put in place some new values or whether we were entering a, a really dangerous period in which we don't have any values than what's left. So I think one of the things that I'm excited to do in this episode is to really kind of clarify what what the values of democracy are, because I think we sometimes think too much, as, as you pointed out, in terms of norms and not enough in terms of values. Uh, so I'll just leave it there. I have a lot to say going forward. I think my impression is similar. I've written a lot about this distinction between norms and democratic values and the ways in which norm violations play different kinds of political roles, including most recently I've written about this politics of transgression and how the the Trump administration uses that uses that norm violation to kind of draw political support from the kinds of sanctions that they um, that they experience from, I guess we might call mainstream politics or, you know, typical normal politics, that that's not, you know, that's not something that's, that's a drawback for them. That's an advantage. So I'm, I'm just kind of banging on the norms versus democratic values drum. And I also am looking forward to, to boring into what, what's really behind norm violations and why do we care about certain kinds of behaviors from people in power 
or from people out of power? What's what's really essential to make democracy work? And how do we make those, how do we bring those values to life and into operation? James? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed our conversation last week. And one of the things that really stood out to me that, that stuck with me over the course of the week was the way in which norms and democratic values change over time. And lost in the conversation about norms and values these days, it appears to me, is the idea that they often do change. And so norm destruction is something we see in the news a lot today. But the other side of the coin there is norm creation. And I think that really encourages us, or it should encourage us, to be more precise in our thinking about whether or not norms are changing and how they're changing. And in how we think about our politics and how we evaluate new norms as they are created. Because if we can do that, then I think you see a lot of the existential threat that people see because of any norm violation that happens. And this is something that comes through in, in your work as well, Julia, that where you observe that, you know, it, this may be bad, this may be a norm violation, but this isn't necessarily an existential risk to the, the republic versus uh, a changing value may in fact be an, a risk or a threat to the public. And so I think really diving into that and, and better articulating in our own minds how we think about norms and norm creation is really important in terms of evaluating um, everyday politics. Awesome. So I think having recapped what, what we've taken away from last week's episode and where we're at in terms of our thinking on norms and values, I want to move into our big question today and start by assessing everyone's initial answers. And our question is, what are the essential values for democracy? So Lee, I'll let you start off here again. Great. So, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this. And ultimately, I, I think the, the most important value of a democracy is a shared sense of fair, fairness and legitimacy. I mean, I think we have to start from the principle that democracy is the system of governance that has the likeliest chance of the greatest number of people flourishing. And therefore, the maintenance of the system of democracy is incredibly crucial. But in order to maintain the system, it has to feel legitimate to the vast majority of people. Uh, otherwise, they're, you know, what holds it together other than the support of democracy. And in order for this to be the case, I, I think there has to be a sense that both the outcomes and the processes are fair. And what I mean by that is that the policies and uh, the sort of distribution of resources and the opportunity are somewhat equally distributed among the population. Uh, and the processes are fair in that everybody can participate and that there are no permanent majorities, no permanent minorities, uh, and that the, the process is, is open enough so that no, nobody is shut out of the process, so that everybody in, in society feels like it's better to participate in democracy than it is to try to overthrow it. And in a, in a sense, this is this was long the challenge of democracy when democracy was starting out was this question of why why would the rich who part you know who who had all these resources participate in democracy when they thought that the poor were going to soak the rich, 
And you know, I think the, the compromise that, that everyone reached was that the idea is that the, in, the, in the long run, everybody does better in a democracy uh, because everybody has a stake in it, and especially with a, a broad middle class that's roughly fair. And I, I think you know, we're, we're losing that in our democracy, and, and that's part of the reason why we're losing the legitimacy as well as the, the hyperpolarization. Uh, so you know, ultimately, I, I think that there are a bunch of subordinate values to maintaining that process of democracy is legitimate and fair. But ultimately, to me, the, 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 the organizing principle and value of democracy has to be that it's the system uh, that is most legitimate and fair of all the systems out there. So anything that cuts against the legitimacy and fairness of the system, I think, undermines democracy. And that, I think, creates space for a lot of conversations about what contributes to the fairness and the legitimacy of democracy. But ultimately, to me, that that is the core value that is that it is legitimate and and fair to to everybody. So I think my sense on this is similar to yours, Lee. And my answer to the question about what are the essential values for democracy is equality and accountability of the powerful. So we're broadly on the same page about fairness, that people have to have equal access to the political process. They have to have equal opportunities for whatever is is important for advancement in society and have um, some, you know, equal opportunity under the law, which I want to, or equality under the law, rather, which I want to talk a little bit about throughout this, throughout our time here later on. Um, So equality and then accountability. And here's where I think that I agree with you about legitimacy, that it's important and that and broadly about where legitimacy comes from, which is is the people have a perception that the process was open, was fair and the rules were consistent. Um, But I think it's really important to emphasize that legitimacy has to be earned. And that's where I think thinking about accountability is really crucial. And so our rules about participation, our rules about representation should be built on these two principles. And I think maybe sometimes this equality and accountability can potentially be, if not directly in tension, they can sort of pull us in different directions in terms of how we might design, we might design our institutions of participation. But I, I really want to emphasize this accountability question. The critical difference to me between where we are in American politics and where we want to be is is really in this ability to hold powerful people accountable and for everyone in society to have equal access to doing that. So in that sense, I think those two values can also work together. I think this is why some of the norms violations that have bothered me so much in the past four years have been about delegitimization of media and opposition and other, you know, the way that the president and members of the administration talk about other Americans. That's, that's what it comes down to for me is that right now it seems to me like we have a pretty strong discourse coming out of the administration and out of other powerful people that, that rejects the notion that they should be held accountable. And I think that once that has started to take hold. It's very hard for the other pieces of democracy to fall into place. James? Yes, I think I can try to connect both of your observations with my overall picture, this very meta view as we then delve into the specifics later on in the show here about 
the essential kind of norms that we have to have in, in our in our system. And listening to Lee and speaking about a shared sense of fairness and legitimacy, you know, he's really stressing outcomes there, right? This this assessment of of what the system does, what it produces, if you will. And when you, Julia, speak about equality and accountability to me, and I agree, I would like to add with all of these, when you mention equality and accountability, I, I think in much more of an, an adverbial way in terms of our ability to participate in the process. Because, and I think sharing with you how I look at this question or how I approach this question will hopefully make this a little bit clearer. I think the most essential values in our democratic republic are those that preserve the space in which politics occurs. I have a very architectonic view of this question because ultimately in our system, we are neither ruled nor rulers. Everyone is both ruler and ruled, if you will. And it's not that the majority rules, it's not that the minority rules. But the problem that the founders grappled with or the framers of the constitution who just started meeting, I guess, on May 25th, a long, long time ago in Philadelphia to write the constitution, they're trying to figure out how to preserve this space because no one has been able to figure out how to do it. Machiavelli wrestles with it. Aristotle wrestles with it. Polybius wrestles with it. This is something that had been has been wrestled with by mankind for a very long time. And they figure it out. Maybe not consciously, maybe it's unconscious on their part, but ultimately what they do is they create a system of separate branches, sharing power, of federalism, of all of these different things, all of this conflict producing stuff that helps to buttress the space and prevents any one person or group of people from coming in and ruling it. And that's so important because equality, we we all have we all need equal access to that space because we're all different. We all have different hopes and fears and dreams. We all have different visions, but we all are equal in the sense that we are all different. So if we are all going to be rulers of our own selves and and, and self-government, then we have to be able to participate in the process of politics, either directly or indirectly via our representatives. We have to be able to see what happens in that space in order to hold the people that are or participating in self-government on our behalf accountable. And then ultimately what comes out of that, we will then make a determination as to whether it's fair and we will basically make a determination as to whether or not it's legitimate. But all of these things that you uh, both have been mentioning all come back to this idea of political space, about an activity where things happen. And we often jump to the end and say, well, we don't like this healthcare proposal or we don't like this immigration proposal. When what we ought to be doing, I think, first and foremost, is looking at and keeping in the front of our mind this the importance of the space where we then make those decisions, whether or not that's a good healthcare to proposal or whether or not that's a good immigration proposal. Can I ask a question of really both of you here about accountability versus the space of politics? Because I, I think there's kind of two visions of democracy here. Um, you know, one is this vision of accountability. Uh, and, and to me, that's there's more of a majoritarian tilt to that, which is that you put a party in power, you see what they do. And then if you don't like their performance, you kick them out. And I think this is sort of the idea that maybe the Acts of 1950 report had for democracy is that you know, voters should make clear choices, let a, let a party 
rule and then, you know, see whether or not they perform. This is a very Westminster style version of democracy. And then there's a second version of democracy, uh, you know, which is more of what the, the R and Leipart consensus democracy uh, vision, which I think James is articulating a little more, is that rather than governance being a reflection of, of elections, what you have instead is this creative space in which a bunch of deals and compromises happen and nobody is clearly in power. But if nobody is clearly in power, then nobody is clearly accountable. So what you then have instead is this process of bargaining and compromise. Uh, but when you have bargaining and compromise, it's really hard to hold anybody accountable because nobody is truly responsible if nobody truly has power. So to I, I prefer the second version uh, because I think it's a version that is able to take into consideration a greater diversity of voices. Uh, it's a much more pluralistic vision, but I think it's hard to hold that vision of democracy to standards of, of, of accountability because it's hard to hold any one person responsible. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious whether you two think those visions are intention or not. I think that they can be. And I, there's a lot of different directions we could we could go in considering this. But I guess what's I guess what's important to me here is that on the one hand, there is a tension between what I see as kind of necessarily adversarial politics to hold powerful people accountable, which is, I think, very much built into the, the design and the thinking in the American system. It's like the branches will will have conflict across, you know, across different different branches in order to hold those branches accountable um and that that's in tension with a more pluralistic vision as as you nicely put it on the other hand i don't think that accountability necessarily has to be this this sort of westminster vision i think that's one vision and that can work and i'm you know i have sort of mixed feelings about how it might work in different u.s contexts but you know what i'm trying to get at more here is the idea that there's there's true transparency and that there's that there's levers i guess is how i would think about it there's ways in which people can act collectively to push back against what people in power do and that sometimes that has to do with this again kind of drawing on this responsive parties notion of democracy this idea of you know well you had this program you said you were going to fix healthcare or the environment or the roads and you you did it or you didn't do it or you did it in a way i don't like and now i'm gonna hold you responsible that's one way of thinking about accountability but the other way of thinking about accountability is i think more generalized to the different ways in which government can work right which has to do with policy direction which has to do with implementation which has to do with a stewardship of public resources and all of that i think is can be more i think can be more subtle and rests with elections but requires a lot of stuff to happen in between elections and that's where you know that's i think a in some ways it's easier because it's more compatible with more different ways of governance but in other ways i think it's harder to to describe or get a handle on than the kind of responsive party voters hold vo voters hold the majority party responsible for the direction of the country and we sort of shift between competing governing visions or 
you know, approaches to implementation or, or what, what have you. That's kind of how I think about that question. I guess for me, the main tension I see there is with legitimacy and this kind of obsession with trust in government that's taken hold in political science for many years. And there's some excellent work illustrating how trust is, is crucial, um, particularly by, uh, by Mark Hetherington. But at the same time, for me, every time I read this or I see people talking about trust in government, which I see is kind of linked to this legitimacy point you made, Lee, I just feel frustrated because I think what is government done to earn my trust lately? Why am I supposed to have trust in powerful institutions? What, you know, what, why, particularly, you know, not just me personally, but why should, why should people of color, why should people who are not earning a lot of money, why should people in, in different segments of society have trust in, in these powerful governing institutions if they haven't earned it? So that's a little bit, it's a little bit different direction, but that's, that's the major tension that I see. I agree. I'm having a mind meld here with with Julia, but I, they are intention. I think they can be intention, but I also think that they're like Julia. They're they're different ways of thinking about accountability. And if you think about a ruler ruled relationship, elections fit that very well. I mean, I think it was John C. Calhoun who would write about how in in Karl Marx and Hannah Arendt, very motley crew there who would write about how voting in an election and doing nothing else is basically choosing your rulers. They may be temporary rulers, but you're just choosing them and then you'll vote in another election. Whereas the way I think about um, politics, I think it's much more of an ongoing thing, something that happens uh, over time and in time. And, and it's your ability to participate in that process, to observe people participating in that process on your behalf and to send them signals, both in elections and outside of elections and in between elections, that really, I think, is, is, is crucial. And, and it gets back to this idea of are we outcome oriented in our thinking about our politics or are we, I guess, process oriented? But it's the action. And I think that's the absolute key, at least in my mind, is what does it take to sustain that action? And by definition, then, things that come out of that will be, according to Madison at least, justice and the general good. It's not always going to be perfect, but hopefully over time, the arc is going to bend towards justice and the general and the general good. And this is something that is very alien to how we think about politics today. And this is why I think norm creation is so important and so interesting, because we typically think about outcomes, and then we see abnormal behavior that may be schmucky, that may be bad, that may not be good, but nevertheless is consistent with the space of politics in our system. And then we dub that illegitimate. And then we try to push the people who are acting in those ways and speaking in those ways outside of the realm of acceptable political conflict. And that's how we win debates. And it's how segregation has tried to win debates against the, the civil rights movement. And it's how we try to win debates today on both the left and the right. And, and I think that is, is very destructive to our system. And it, and it basically takes the norm creation value creation and law creation outside of the space of politics and says, we over here are going to make these decisions and then we will then declare what is legitimate and illegitimate. But we have to have a place where we make those decisions. We have to have a process by which we make those decisions. And if we don't have that place in that process, or we're not all entitled to be there, 
participating in that place in that process, then we're doing something very, very different than what we think we're doing. So I, I want to build on on what you all are saying here, because I think we're we're coming to an interesting uh, critique of current American politics, which is this prevailing notion that elections have consequences. And the most important thing is to vote. And then we just vote and our leaders should be responsive to our vote. And what I'm hearing from both of you is that that's a very limited and constrained vision of accountability. Uh, what we really should expect is that democracy and governance is an ongoing process in which it's not just about elections, but it's about compromise, conflict, negotiation, and that the levers of accountability are not just polls, but also we should think of the media, we should think of other polit uh, politicians and parties competing against each other. And the, the work that comes to mind, I, I don't know if you know this book, um, The Mindsets of Political Compromise by Amy Gutman and Dennis Thompson, who I think do a nice job of clarifying uh, the distinction between governing and campaigning in the sense that governing is about finding compromises and having conflict in the arena of a legislature. And it means that you actually have to work to find common ground at some level, whereas elections uh, are really anti-compromise. They're about drawing sharp conflicts. And I think one of the problems in our current politics is that we think that we resolve everything by elections, but we really we resolve nothing by elections because we're just always going to have another election. And by focusing so much on campaigning, so much on elections, so much on drawing contrast, we actually are undermining the kind of procedural accountability that I think you both are talking about here. So I'm going to turn it over and see what you what you guys think about that. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And I write some something about that in my um, book on presidential mandate claiming this this kind of vacillation between I, I talked a little bit in the book about how Congress has changed control so many times since um, since I guess I started that period around 1980 and then the, the book came out in 2014 that Congress had changed control a lot. And you saw this sort of rhetoric of, you know, of, of holding people accountable or throwing, you know, throwing the rascals out. And that's obviously important. And like alternation of power is super important, but it's not everything. And the notion of, you know, kind of one of the key points of my book was that democratic discourse has become all about elections and has become very election focused in a way that actually does a does a disservice to what elections can do and can be about, but also as, as James talks about a lot on this podcast about what happens between elections. And yeah, they're exactly, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, and I am probably thinking about some different things than James. I think that sometimes the processes that we envision also have ideological implications and that's fine. You know, I'm thinking about organizing, but I'm also thinking about like, comment periods on on rules being adopted and that's very high level participation of course but these are all in media very much about media um a, a common target of politicians honestly 
you know, left and right. Trump has taken his critiques of the media to a new level, but this is, he didn't invent the genre. The media is a very common and popular punching bag. And I think that's, that's actually a norm that's evolved in American politics that we don't, we don't really think seriously enough about, or we haven't safeguarded that norm and that idea that the media is there as an instrument of accountability. And, you know, is this sometimes a problem given also commercial imperatives? Sure. It, or is the media made up of people who have their own incentives and who are, who are flawed? Sure. But that as an institution is really critical. I don't think we've really taken that seriously or safeguarded it. Instead, it becomes this kind of common punch bag, punching bag. It's an easy thing for politicians to blame for various problems. And, you know, it's become this sort of common populist target. We haven't safeguarded that. And now we have Trump who uses that, um, uses that kind of language in a totally new and and more extreme and I think dangerous way. So that may have, that may have strayed from your original point, but those are my, those are my stray thoughts. I'll let James um, bring it home here. And then I want to move into our next, um, our next question about how, how we're doing in terms of some of these values. Well, we're in trouble if you're expecting me to tie everything up and bring it home. But yeah, bring up, give us a nice, concise transition, James. A nice, concise transition. Okay. <laughs> when you think about politics as a giant factory that produces outcomes, a politics as production paradigm, if you will, obviously then everything shifts to controlling the means of production. After all, if you want to build the widget, you got to control the factory. And to control the factory, you have to control the means of production. What are the means of production in American politics? elections, because you need gavels, you need votes, you need the White House, you need judges on benches wearing robes. And the only way to do that is to win elections. So your focus then shifts to the electoral context. And then everything that happens between those elections then gets subsumed to that goal. And the the joke, though, I think, is that nothing ever changes because there's it actually undermines accountability, if you will, because in the process, it, let's take Congress, for instance, of trying to win elections, you want to present a unified front because divided parties can't win elections. So you keep issues that divide your party off the agenda. And the same with the minority party in the Congress, for instance. And then all of a sudden now, and when you have to make really tough decisions, you do so in a way where the pivotal players aren't clear. The inflection points are obscured to both members to of Congress, to interest groups, to constituents around the country. You have no idea what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden you're being confronted with fait accompli's about we have to pass this bill, which allows both people to both sides of a debate to talk out of both sides of their mouth and say, well, I really love this provision or I hate this provision, but I had to support this bill. And you lose accountability in that process, which is ironic because the whole thing is being done to strengthen the party's ability to win in an election. And that's because accountability is about more than just elections. It's about being able to see your claims adjudicated in the process of politics, either by yourself via citizen action, civil disobedience, whatever you want to call it, or by your elected representatives in Congress, in the rulemaking period, in the courts, wherever it may be. And if you can't see that process happening, then it, you can't hold people accountable because you have no idea if your claims have been adjudicated and where people stand on them. And 
And the the irony in all of this is that our electoral focus now, I think, has both decreased the level of accountability in our politics, and it's obscured the, the stuff that actually happens, and it's lowered our horizons. It's lowered our sense of what's possible, because when you no longer get in big, messy fights, you can't do big, important things. How was yeah, that? Yeah, I think that's actually a great, that great, good work. I mean, there's I've had a lot of thoughts about about accountability and partisanship and elections and what happens between them. And especially that I think to, to maybe uh, offer a concluding note for this segment and move into the next one is that our, our notion of accountability asks a lot of people and that asks a lot of, of citizens, uh, maybe I'm kind of broadly defining citizens in this context. And it, you know, whether or not that's, viable or what whether we have institutions that support that maybe is another way to think about it um might be you know might be an episode for a whole other podcast about institutions and and participation so i'm gonna i'm gonna make a note but i'm also gonna move us on here um to really gauge how we think we're doing in terms of some of these and some of these values so james i'll turn it i'll turn it back over to you for this question of, of how how are we doing in terms of the values that you've identified as your core um, important pieces of the democratic puzzle? I This is where I actually am not much of an optimist because when I look out at the American landscape today, I see a lot of similarity on both the left and the right and how they think about and approach politics. And it's a very outcome-centered view these days. You can think about Jeff Flake saying that Donald Trump, and you may like Jeff Flake, you may not like him. You may like Donald Trump, you may not like him. But Jeff Flake will say, you know, Trump's views on immigration, on trade, and on foreign policy are violations of the civic creed. Well, that's, that's very specifically designed to do what? To push people who hold those views outside the realm of acceptable political conflict. And Elizabeth Warren does something very similar um, when, with, with, say, Jeff Sessions and his position on voter ID. Again, you may agree or disagree with, the, with voter ID. It may very ha- have very real consequences. But instead of debating and engaging on those consequences, uh, Elizabeth Warren will say, well, people who support voter ID are racist. And they, they may be racist to support voter ID, but that's I'm not disagreeing with that. My point is that it's not a given. And simply because you have a policy position doesn't mean that you are then unable to or shouldn't be able to participate in politics. And this we, we, we think about space in a very different way now. We think about it like a factory. And like anybody who wants to build something, you got to control the factory. And so we do anything and everything we can is a means to an end to control the factory of politics. And that, I think, is very poisonous to our discourse. I think it makes it, it, it ironically, is really bad for, for diversity, for tolerance, for all of the values that I think we all can kind of agree on. It all comes back to this, because to make politics work, you have to be able to get into the arena with people with whom you disagree. And you have to be able to disagree there. And then when you have outcomes, you have those outcomes have to be produced by following the rules. And then those rules need to be have some sense of commitment to them into the future as well. So that, yes, I can compromise today because I know if I work harder, I might win in the future. But the second you see things that just all outcome oriented and you'll do anything it takes to win, all of a sudden the rules get rationalized away and it makes making compromise impossible. 
forgiveness, the spirit of forgiveness, which is absolutely critical to to politics and to a democratic self-government like ours, that goes away because it, it, you're dealing with people who are fundamentally illegitimate. And I, and I, and I worry about this. I worry about this. We, we've lost the ability, it seems to me, to disagree in this country. So my sense on this is sort of similar to yours, James, in terms of the space, but I disagree somewhat with your diagnosis about how this has changed over time. My sense of this is that as far as the kind of ideas and perspectives and range of people whose views are being included in this space, American democracy is actually a, a, an all-time high. Yeah, I I said that. Um, that's I know that's that's not a dominant view. I wrote about this a little bit in Foreign Affairs last year in in a piece that I had called "It's the Institutions, Stupid," which I did not title. Um, but one of the things I tried to emphasize is we have a crisis of governance. But actually, if you look at who has access to aspects of power. That women, various minority religion and racial groups, LGBT Americans, this is a kind of the, the goldenest age we've had yet. There's still room for improvement, but certainly the most diverse set of voices in power. What I think is really broken down is our ability to govern in the face of these attainments toward equality. You know, I see these problems as, as actually linked. So I think it would be useful can i jump in real quick because i think that's very that helps me articulate my my thinking as well and i agree i think the circle of if you think about political participation and and our polity and you think about the, the the people who are allowed to participate that circle has gotten bigger thankfully over time it started off very very narrow in our country and it's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and maybe it'll get bigger still in the future i agree with that i think what's what's interesting is that the things decided in that circle and how those pe- have changed, and they've gotten more limited, I think. And then I think the people who make those decisions, the way that people make decisions there has also changed. I think that's the fundamental um, kind of problem, as I see it, at least. That makes sense, too. Yeah, let's let Lee jump in here. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna jump into the arena here. Uh, and Get in and the who arena. knows what's going to happen. Uh, so I, I want to pick up on something that James said that actually struck me as, as quite profound, which is this idea that politics is all about controlling the means of production. Uh, And it's all about getting power. And I want to connect that, Julia, with what you said about more diverse people being in positions of power, and yet the quality of governance being worse. And I think this is gets back to this fundamental problem. And it's linked with elections as being the the total organizing principle of our politics, that everything is about getting into power and then trying to maintain that power. It's not doing anything with that power or risking that power. Uh, It's just about trying to maintain that power. And I think the one way to, to think about it is in terms of where the bargaining in politics happens. And, I mean, all politics is about building coalitions, but there are two ways you can think about building coalitions. One is that you build coalitions before elections, and then you're trying to get majority power to enact an agenda. And that's what we do in in American politics. Uh, Or two is you build coalitions after the election. 
uh, and you build them on an issue by issue basis. And that's what happens in most advanced democracies that are in which there's no majority party. There's just co governing coalitions that work until they don't work. Or frankly, it's what used to happen in U.S. politics in which, you know, parties, yeah, they might have won an election, but there were so many factions within the parties that, you know, it wasn't about one party imposing its agenda. It was about issues emerging and coalitions and politics actually happening. So, I mean, I really do think that the problem of our democracy is that we have this sense that if only our party gets power, then everything will be okay. And if the other party gets power, then everything is going to be ruined. So everything focuses on the election. And then when you talk, you talk about trust in institutions, and and you know, I think I think a lot about Mark Hetherington's work on this, particularly his book with Thomas Rudolph on why Washington can't work. That it's all about polarized trust. That we distrust government when the other party is in power. Um, Republicans tend to trust government less, but you know it, it's not about trust in government. It's about trust in the governors. So we government doesn't have the capacity to do anything uh, because one side is in power and the other side is out of power, and the side that's out of power doesn't trust the side that's in power. So. We just have this this sort of illusion that at some point our side is going to win. But when our side wins, our side one doesn't have the, the legitimacy and trust to accomplish anything. And two, doesn't want to take any chances to actually open up the space because that side wants to maintain power. So it's it's like it's like this Chinese finger trap that we're stuck in. And if only we relinquish the idea that our side is has to be the winner. Uh, then I think we'd do a lot better. But our entire structure of majoritarian two-party politics doesn't allow us to do that. So there. Sorry, well my my cat got uh, tangled up in my headphones. Oh, <laughs> so. was, was it was it all was it was that a metaphor for what what I was saying? I mean, it could be, but literally, it was also a thing that happened where my cat wanted some attention, so that she was coming and like sitting on my lap but i was holding her and then she got it her was paws a catastrophe. tangled up <laughs> well <laughs> we're gonna have to untangle this situation yeah anyway i had to take my headphones out uh so your cat and derrida both see politics in very similar terms it's about the gordian knot my cat is untangling the strands of of pluralistic individuals i really should have i should have led with the fact that my cat is deridian but i didn't um Okay, so here's here's what I I think we should do is let's take what we've laid out here. We've we've kind of moved from our original questions about transgressions against democratic values to some broader systemic critiques, which is definitely uh, definitely our wheelhouse. Um, very very in character, very on brand for politics in question. But what I want to do is link some of these more these broader and more abstract principles and bigger system level kinds of, of criticisms and complaints that we have and see how these link up with the kind of transgressions that are observable in contemporary politics. So we have a list here of recent transgressions against political norms, many of which are perfectly constitutional and okay. 
um, and and ask you know how many how many alarm bells and how do these link up to some of the the questions that we're talking about? And I want to foreshadow here and say that I think that one of the things that's coming out of this discussion is that we tend to have these episodic norm violation moments, particularly they're focused on the Trump administration, but sometimes um, other actors in the system responding to Trump or, or responding to something else entirely. Um, and we'll kind of say, you know, this is a, this is a violation of norms. Sometimes we articulate, we, I'm talking about we, I don't know, media, pundits, politics obsessed people. Sometimes we articulate that value well, sometimes we don't. Um, but it's very sort of episodic and we don't always think about how these are linked to this kind of broader, broader problems in the system that keep recurring. So I kind of like to think about that. I'm going to throw out, I'm going to throw out this, this list and let you all pick up on, you know, what the important norm violations might've been. Well, we can go in order. So I've got the Merrick Garland hold up, the, um, Trump's talk about a Muslim travel ban and a border wall, Obama doing DACA, using the executive branch to make um, pretty broad immigration policy through through rulemaking, Nancy Pelosi recently referring to Donald Trump as obese, um, talking about his risk of, uh, of contracting the uh, COVID-19 and um, experiencing adverse health consequences, what went down in the Wisconsin primary, which we've talked quite a bit about, um, Trump tweeting about vote fraud, this confrontation between the Trump administration and Joe Scarborough and his tweeting about the death of an intern in his office many years ago and that the the widower of that intern has written and asked the president to stop um, to stop tweeting about his late wife and about um, about the the incident basically making baseless claims that Joe Scarborough was responsible for her death. So these are some of the some of the norm violations that have happened recently. Anyone want to pick up on one of those and talk about its implications? Yeah, I mean, let's start with Merrick Garland. I think this is a great example, both of how of 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 perceived transgressions, and then how the way in which we react to those transgressions illuminates the kind of broader problems within our our system right now. And this was something that. Obviously, our listeners are going to, if they're listening to politics in question, chances are they care about politics. Chances are they remember the Merrick Garland episode where Senate Republicans uh, in the majority refused to act on um, President Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland um, to the Supreme Court. And this is a big deal. I think it's a bit cynical, though, because I would just point out at the front end that the Democrats also could have forced action if they if they had wanted to in the Senate and chose not to. I think both sides were playing this this episode for maximum political effect before the 2016 election. And we've lost sight of with the ju federal judiciary right now, because we have this idea of we want to control the factory. We've lost sight of the fact that the Senate has the authority not to act. They, they don't they have the they can decide if they don't want to confirm a presidential nominee and they cannot confirm a presidential nominee by inaction. There's nothing that requires the Senate to act on every single presidential nominee. And there's this one sentence in a letter that Madison writes in 1813, James Madison to the um, to the Senate. And he's and Madison says that the executive in the Senate and ca the cases of appointments to office and of treaties are to be considered independent and coordinate with each other. 
And he goes on to say the relation between the Senate and the House of Representatives in whom legislative power is concurrently vested is sufficiently analogous to illustrate that between the executive and Senate in making appointments and treaties. The two houses are in like manner independent of and coordinate with each other. And the implication here is that just as the Senate has no obligation to vote on every single piece of legislation that passes the House, there's no obligation for it to vote on every presidential nomination. Yet in the Merrick Garland episode, all of a sudden, people who wanted Merrick Garland to be confirmed say that that the Republicans stole a Supreme Court seat, that, that this was an illegitimate breach of the Constitution, that the Senate had an obligation to act on that nominee. And that's just false in my view. I mean, it, Garland may have been a good nominee. He may not have. I don't, I'm not making that claim. Well, all I'm saying is the Senate can make a decision on how it wants to act. And then the voters can decide whether or not they want to hold the Senate accountable for that decision. Well, but James there, you're, you're talking about accountability in terms of elections and which is, you know, I mean, I, I understand why you do that because that's how, you know, that that's the, the quick shorthand for accountability. But I, I want to step back a little bit. But but uh, real quick, I mean, you can also hold a yes, and that elections are a key part of it. But you can also hold accountable by having a, a letter writing campaign. You can shut the phone circuits down. You can have broad uh, uh, public participation and, and activism. And none of that happened around uh, Merrick Garland, it seems to me. Maybe some of it did, but not certainly to the level that that was sufficient to signal um, to force either Democrats or Republicans in that episode to take. I mean, action. a ton of it did. There was there were huge activist campaigns on the left. I mean, but the, I mean, the problem. I mean, if we're going to talk about accountability, the problem is that that Mitch McConnell and uh, the folks who supported him did didn't feel any of that pressure because they didn't feel that anything was at stake for them personally. If a bunch of of liberal activists get upset, uh, now maybe if if. Senator, to your point, maybe if Democratic senators had taken some of their powers and actually used them to force a, a vote in the Senate, maybe we, we would have had a, a, a different outcome. But I want to step this back to a broader point about the, the role of the Supreme Court and the predictability of liberal versus conservative justices, which is you know that for, for a long time, you know, there weren't really predictably liberal and conservative justices. And if you look at a lot of appointments over time, that, that the justices evolved and changed and they didn't rule necessarily in predictable fashions. But as with everything in our politics, the, the stakes have gotten higher as things have become more clearly divided. And now, you know, both the left and the right have their own preferred list of judges who are going to basically predictably rule for out for their entire career. It's a lifetime appointment. And James, to, to something that, that you and I have, have written about, we because we can't resolve a lot of our important disputes in the normal political venues, we actually depend on the court. So the problem is that the court itself has taken on this superordinate role in our politics because our, our normal institutions of governing and compromise and negotiation and conflict are not working. And on top of that, like everything else in our politics, the Supreme Court has divided predictably into left and right. And so in picking a justice, we're not picking somebody who will you know, just rule 
and consider varying perspectives, we have somebody who's going to be a predictable vote for one side or a predictable vote for the other side. So you combine those two and you create this incredibly high stakes fight in which, I mean, and this is, I mean, the, the, the Merrick Garland is part of an ongoing escalation over the politics of judicial appointments. Uh, so, I mean, in and of itself, it, it does feel like a norm violation, but it, it, it is just a continue of this escalation of, of hardball because we can't actually resolve any issues because our politics is all about controlling power and not actually about having conflicts and fights, uh, to your point, James. I think that's the point that you've raised several times today, Lee, about consolidating power is really accurate. And it also, it taps into something we talked about last week, which we were actually a little bit more skeptical about. And that's the this notion of forbearance from the from how democracies die. The idea there with how democracies die with forbearance is this idea that people in power should kind of not use all the power they have at their disposal. And I um I stand by my skepticism that this that the moment we're in right now is somehow like exceptional and I think people have always wanted power and tried to use, you know, politicians have always tried to use the power they had at their disposal. But what I think we're kind of talking about here is how that was used in the context of um, of this Merrick Garland nomination in, in 2016, in the sense that there weren't a lot of successful mechanisms for really channeling public perceptions of this or channeling that there was, you know, widespread dissatisfaction with what the Republicans were doing and holding up the nomination or widespread dissatisfaction with how the Democrats were handling it or widespread support and satisfaction, right? There was really no mechanism of clear accountability there. So we're really dependent in those kinds of settings on people in power using norms and, you know, engaging in some, some amount of, um, of forbearance or kind of restraint in their, in their use of their their powers. And I want to actually link this to some of the the communications oriented violations that we have on our our list and see if I can make this all work. So we talked about on our list we've got this, you know, Nancy Pelosi calling Donald Trump obese, which was um happened I think um about a week ago, sometime in the week around May May 20th. And this whole variety of of this whole genre of Trump tweets um that you know ones that call out private citizens that undermine the legitimacy of elections all sorts of different things but especially i kind of want to focus on this the calling out of the private citizens um these communications norms are often depicted in terms of just being they're just it's just poor taste right you're just sort of not acting in a way that's becoming of someone who holds your office and i think that those critiques really miss the point and the point is about power and the ways in which those kinds of comments either bring the power of the presidency to bear on a private citizen in a way that there's just no real way to check. There's no real way to push back. And once that communication is out there and the world is out there. Um, and so like what happened in um, in 2016, there's I'm going to draw on James's idea of space here. There's no real space for for true accountability and that's when we're most dependent on 
elites to abide by these kinds of, of restraining norms. And I think that's that's sort of similar when you get something like someone like Pelosi talking about Trump being, you know, being at risk because he's obese is like, you know, is talking about people's bodies in good taste. No, but what's really going on there is that she's using this social category to to critique the president and in so doing, you know, tapping into a lot of, um, you know, the, the perspective, the situation of a lot of Americans as well. And, you know, commenting on people's weight or suggesting that that people, um, you know, that this is an insult to talk about someone's body this way isn't just talking about Trump, right? It's talking about a lot of other people who don't have the same platform that Pelosi does to defend themselves. Um, so that might be. I, yeah, go ahead. And I'll, just to link that with uh, with the prior conversation on the judiciary, I think and I think that's a very uh, insightful point, an observation you make, Julia. If you think back to the the president's um, Muslim ban on and people from from Islamic countries coming into this uh, country and there was a judge, a district court judge somewhere um, or who put an injunction on it, I forget the details and then. Um, or no, actually this has to do with the border wall, but there was a judge and then Trump said something about a Mexican judge or a Hispanic judge, something like that. And look, do you want your president, you know, making comments like that? Probably not. Do you, is it in good taste? No. Should he do it? No. But it's not a blow to the Republic for the president to disagree with a judge, right? It's not it's not, you know, it's not something that fundamentally is going to, um, to, to rip out the fabric of our, of our democracy and make it impossible for it to succeed. Uh, you know, I, but I do take your point though, very well, that the way in which these comments can be presented can have a effect of collapsing that space, if you will. And I think that's a, a very insightful point. But James, isn't that just an, another example of, of a politician trying to delegitimize an opponent and trying to put them out of the space of politics. How is that different than your your criticism of Flake calling anti-immigration views anti-American? Right. I I don't I don't think that Flake calling anti-immigration views as violations of the civic creed is in and of itself a threat to the system. I think the fact that we all think about that without any kind of controversy and say, oh, of course, sure. That, that I think, is a threat to the system. I think our system, actually, the way to preserve the space and to buttress the space from collapsing in on itself is to have presidents and congresses and judges and people who disagree with one another and who engage in political conflict with one another. And yes, I don't think that having a president who can who doesn't respect the legitimacy of the judiciary is a sustainable thing. And I think that will be very bad. But one comment about a, a judge is not in and of itself the the problem. It's the broader thing that, that comment reflects. But I think we miss that point when we zero in on the specifics, if that makes yeah. sense. And again, I'm not condoning the specifics at all. I, I just I just think it's important to get kind of beyond the the, the details to look at the underlying uh, commonalities and all. Of well, I mean, things. there is a there is a broader outrage industry here. And, and you know, I mean, the, I think the critique of the media is that the media focuses too much on conflict and not enough on substance. And although we sort of talk about the media as an important force for accountability, we also have to acknowledge the ways in which particularly the business models of the media ha have, you know, I think also accelerated 
the the ways in which we focus all about the horse race, all about the elections, and and that certain comments you know get amplified, uh, and other issues get ignored. I mean, why are we talking about the president's tweets about Joe Scarborough? I mean, you know, they could have just been ignored, but why are we, you know, why are we talking about Nancy Pelosi calling Trump morbidly obese? That could have just been ignored too. But there is that that aspect of the media that that rather than sometimes holding power accountable, just creates conflicts that then draw traffic. So I think we're we should probably wrap up now. Julie, do you want to take us to the final final conclusion? Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to we've we've really laid out a lot of issues here and gone in a bunch of different directions. And one theme that's emerged here has been our different attitudes about accountability and how that happens. Um, But I want to bring us home with our final question. You know, what have we what have we learned? Has anyone changed their mind uh, from what from where they started? I mean, we started laying out what values we think are important in democracy and what we think the status of those are. So has anyone shifted in their thinking over the course of this conversation? Yeah, I would just like to chime in very quickly that when I think about space and politics, I can oftentimes uh, do so in a very, um, uh, very kind of not glib manner, but you know, I don't, I need to pay more attention in my thinking to the hurdles that people face in real life, the everyday common sense, very mundane hurdles that people face um, in terms of participating in politics, um, whether they be psychological, financial, emotional, whatever, physical, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, there, there are hurdles. And so it's one thing to say that politics is all about space and we need norms and values to buttress that space and then welcome everything into that space. But it's another thing entirely to actually do it. And I think that's something that we oftentimes miss in our politics these days. And I, I'm, I'm guilty of it myself. And I need to think more deeply about that. Yeah. So this has been a fascinating conversation. And, you know, I think we've you know, re- really explored a lot of these core questions and tensions. And, you know, this question of accountability, I think we, we keep coming back to. And I mean, clearly there needs to be some type of accountability, but I, I think that you know the 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 question of of how we how we hold the system accountable is a question of who are we actually holding accountable and how and and one of the challenges that I see in in this current moment of politics is that everybody is dissatisfied or most people seem to be dissatisfied with how politics is working and yet. The vast majority of incumbents keep getting reelected. So, if we're so dissatisfied, why do we keep sending the same people to Washington? And I, I think the the answer is that we're highly partisan, and we have no other choice than to keep sending our side back and hoping that we can just elect enough of our side to finally get this elusive permanent majority. And then somehow we will you know, achieve this vision uh, of, of democracy that, that comports with our values. But that just seems to me a, a dangerous illusion. And I think that we keep pushing on elections and accountability as this uh, kind of way in which somehow we will take power. But I think James's point, again, really sticks with me about you know, it, controlling the means of production 
uh, as being this, uh, this end in and of itself. And yeah, politics has always been about power, uh, but I think what's different in this era and why we're having so many problems is that there's this sense that whichever side gets power will use that power to somehow achieve total control and dominance, which is in many ways ironic because that's not at all what's happening and it, it doesn't seem to happen. But yet there is this biding sense, I think, on, on both sides that whatever happens in 2020, the the fate of American politics will be radically different if if Democrats win versus if Republicans win. And, you know, it might be if Republicans win, it'll be the last election. It'll be the end of American democracy. Democrats win, it'll be the end of American democracy. So it feels like we're constantly playing for all the marbles and all the power and everything is as high stakes. And yet that that very logic of everything going into elections is undermining the ability of politics to actually work. Yeah, I think these are good points. And what I want to actually say in my, my recap is to link these two points. So what, what James is saying about participation and the ways in which participation is challenging for, for people and the kinds of barriers to participation. And here, you know, really what I'm talking about is a fairly you know basic participation in voting and maybe other kinds of more extensive participation in the electoral process of, you know, volunteering for a campaign or displaying a sticker or a yard sign or whatever, some of these signs of, of partisanship. Um, that political behaviorists talk about in their work. And what Lee is talking about, which is the the rhetoric and conduct of elections is really high stakes affairs. And I agree with you, Lee, that there's a there's a kind of deep irony there in how much that turns out to not entirely be true because so little is is getting done, at least in the, the legislative arena. But at the same time, it strikes me that these things are actually connected, right? That 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 this kind of of zero-sum rhetoric is a strategy to overcome these barriers to participation and to get one's supporters to um, to be engaged. And that these problems are perhaps kind of deeply connected and help us draw a path between where we are right now and this kind of highly polarized but also high-attention political environment and where we were 20 years ago with a you know or 25 years ago with with a more in a lot of ways more tranquil political environment but much lower um much lower political participation in you know particularly the presidential level so something something there to think about and to give us some maybe directions for future episodes all right this has been politics in question thank you again so much everyone for listening Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. Hey, Politics in Question listeners. My name is Jenna Spinelli, and I'm one of the hosts of the Democracy Works podcast. If you enjoy the thought-provoking conversations here on Politics in Question, I think you'll enjoy Democracy Works, too. 
Every week we examine a different aspect of what it means to live in a democracy. Sometimes it's big concepts like neoliberalism or demagoguery. Sometimes we zoom in to examine things like how COVID-19 is impacting elections and the census. Some of our previous guests include Wendy Brown, Theda Scotchpole, Andrew Sullivan, and Politics and Questions own Lee Drudman. New episodes are released every Monday. You can find them at democracyworkspodcast.com or by searching Democracy Works in your podcast app. Again, that's democracyworkspodcast.com or search Democracy Works wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.